Welcome to the Everything Works Out For Us podcast. My name is Marina, and I'm so happy that you're here to join me on this journey of embracing a growth mindset that's grounded in gratitude and self-awareness. I'm an REBT mindset life coach, actor, singer, content creator, and the bigger sister that you always wanted. And I'm ready to start turning our mental and emotional roadblocks into roadmaps. In each episode, I holistically utilize psychology, spirituality, and my own personal experiences to strive to empower you to step into your power and deeply connect to both your inner knowing and the world around you. Let's grow together. Hello, my beautiful listeners, and welcome back to the pod. For those of you in Chicago, I hope you are staying warm. For those of you who are not in Chicago, it is literally negative 30 degrees. So catch me not leaving my house for any reason except for anything absolutely necessary, including going to work and seeing the Mean Girls movie. (laughs) The two necessary things that I must get done this week, unfortunately. So anyway, let's just dive right into the episode this week. I have spent a lot of time within the past year researching attachment theory, and I feel like I talk about it a lot on the pod, but I've never fully done a deep dive into it. So that is what we are going to do this week. I'm really passionate about it. I really think it's beneficial for anyone who is intending to be in a long-term relationship ever in their life to get a firmer understanding of attachment theory. So let's buckle in and learn something today. (laughs) So as children, we develop an attachment style and that basically becomes a roadmap to how we view and act in relationships throughout the rest of our lives. And we are not born with an attachment style. It's something that we adopt early in life. And our attachment style can also change based on big life events or trauma as well. So if you find yourself in on and off again relationships, like they push you away and you try to pull closer or vice versa, aka those runner and chaser dynamics, if you find yourself in toxic cycles or just overall feel confused about why you can't seem to have a long lasting and healthy connection with someone, I hope that this episode will particularly resonate with you. There are psychological and scientific answers for these addictive, confusing, and devastating relationship dynamics. And for me, I am always comforted in knowing that I'm not alone in my brain or the patterns that I'm creating are not just me. I'm not crazy. There's actual answers to them because once we have the answers, then we can change and learn and grow, right? So I think it's important to get into the science and psychology a bit in the beginning here. So bear with me as we start off a bit heady, but like I said, when we can understand how we connect with and attach to others, it really helps us have the healthiest relationships possible because we can only heal our patterns by learning about them and becoming aware of them first. All right. Diving right in with attachment styles, the psychological explanation for the emotional bonds and relationships between people stem from your attachment style. And they stem from Dr. John Bowlby's attachment theory, which is the way that we form attachments to people as adults is directly caused by how we bonded with our caregivers in childhood. Previously, behaviorists had believed that food was the primary thing that led to children demonstrating attachment. However, Bowlby demonstrated that it was actually comfort and nurture that was the primary factor behind attachment. 
Mary Ainsworth expanded upon this theory in her strange situation experiment, and then from this experiment concluded that there are three main styles of attachment that humans fall under, being securely attached, avoidantly attached, and anxiously attached. And then there are umbrellas under those as well. So this experiment was children between the ages of 18 months and 12 years old were left in a room with their primary caregiver. And the child was given time to explore the room with their caregiver present. And the caregiver then leaves the room, giving the child time to notice, react, and cope. And then the caregiver returns. So children that they found to be securely attached were able to fully explore the room and enjoy themselves while the caregiver was present. And then they cried and showed distress when the caregiver left. But once the caregiver returned, they welcomed them back and they were happy back to homeostasis. They found that children with an avoidant attachment style were unfazed when their caregiver left and they were ambivalent about their caregiver's return. They were highly emotionally and physically independent. And then anxiously attached children were not able to fully explore the space even when their caregiver was present as they clung to their side. And then when the caregiver left, they were extremely distressed and they were still unable to be calmed down upon their return. Some of them were even angrier upon the caregiver's return. The main findings for these studies were that the children who had both physically and emotionally reliable caregivers had a secure attachment and those who had emotionally and or physically inconsistent caregivers, as in sometimes they would receive love, comfort, and validation, and sometimes they weren't, um, those were anxiously attached because then they feared abandonment from the caregivers that they most relied on. And those who had generally unattentive and unresponsive caregivers were avoidant because they learned that they could not rely on their caregiver to meet their needs and Therefore, they learned the coping strategies of hyper-independence and anti-reliance on a caregiver, both as a defense mechanism and a coping mechanism to stay alive. According to the book Attached by Amir Levine and Rachel S.F. Heller, 25% of the population is avoidant, 25% is anxious, and 50% is secure. So it is rarer to be to have an insecure attachment style. It is more common, again, to have a secure one, but these are the findings as to why this may happen in early life. All right, so now that we learned about the traits in childhood, let's chat about how this manifests in adulthood. So securely attached adults are reliable and consistent and they keep their promises. They maintain open and honest communication and they set healthy boundaries and they make people feel comfortable about where your relationship stands and they communicate things or they communicate when things are bothering them without acting out or without blaming and shaming all that yucky stuff. They typically have a positive self-view, higher self-esteem, but a healthy self-esteem, and they're able to compromise, take accountability, and problem-solve in a healthy way. They don't view relationships as hard work, and they're not afraid to start new relationships. And with a securely attached person, closeness creates further closeness. 
after emotional conversations or meaningful physical intimacy, they are there for you. And it just promotes even more closeness between the two. Secure people don't play games. They don't make you feel jealous and they naturally express their feelings and they're not afraid of commitment. This is obviously the ideal, right? This is like, oh, what a dream. I can't wait to meet someone like this someday or I can't wait to be like this someday if you're not already. But yay, 50% of the population already there. So slay for them. All right, now let's talk about anxiously attached adults. Starting off strong, an anxious attacher's biggest fear is abandonment. And when their fears get triggered by perceived lack of connection, this often leads to panic and them making desperate attempts for closeness. They will do anything to try to soothe that fear of being abandoned. They want a lot of closeness, especially early on, including physical contact and They tend to jump into things very quickly and they're very comfortable with that. They stereotypically can be called needy or clingy. Those are just some kind of buzzwords that you may hear with anxiously attached people. They tend to be insecure and they worry a lot about rejection and anxious attachers tend to be big people pleasers. So Additionally, they're always worrying about their partner's exes. They are constantly afraid that their partner will find someone better or that they aren't attracted to them anymore. They also tend to make mountains out of molehills and they are afraid that small acts that they might do might push their partners away. So for example, they might say things like, I'm afraid you'll get tired of me because we spend so much time together or I'm afraid that your friends will hate me just slightly insecure comments like that, that realistically don't really make any sense. Now with these people pleasing tendencies, they have emphasis on self abandonment. They focus so much on others that they abandon their own needs. And this is ironic because their deepest fear is being abandoned yet subconsciously they are abandoning themselves on the daily. Anxious attachers tend to be people who are always wanting or needing to be in a relationship because they they don't know how to fulfill their own needs and they always want that validation from external sources. They have difficulty explaining what's wrong or with setting boundaries and they can tend to blame or interpret behaviors as always about them. And when someone deep in their anxious attachment gets really, really triggered and really fearful, They can do things called protest behaviors, and so some of these extreme behaviors are really acting out, threatening to leave, threatening to break up with their partner, but never really meaning it, just kind of using it as a last resort attempt to keep them closer. Again, these behaviors always contradict what they actually want, what they're actually trying to achieve. They can be untrusting and Again, these protest behaviors can be things like checking their partner's phone because they're untrusting of them, Um, going through your belongings, always trying to know where you are, what you're doing. They want constant communication from their partner and they want to be constantly in the presence of their partner as well. Anxious avoiders, again, deep in their anxious attachment can lack emotional permanence. So similar to object permanence, which babies don't have, which is why babies are 
so amazed when you play peekaboo with them because when something is not physically in their sight, they think that it doesn't exist anymore. So with emotional permanence, when their partner is not physically in their presence, always giving them affirmations, how much they love them, how much they need them, etc. When they're gone, they don't believe that that is true. And they need that constant validation because they're so afraid of being abandoned. So when their partner is physically gone, that is why these protest behaviors start because they, they crave that attention and validation in order to feel worthy and good enough. Because they are always striving for constant connection and attention, if they're not getting this, then again, they can seek it out in toxic ways and protest behaviors, stuff like picking fights for no reason. It's just a strategy for some form of an of emotional connection, even if it's toxic. Anxious attachers tend to be very hypervigilant and very hyper aware of their surroundings and of their connections, and they're always on edge and they always fear disconnection, hence the word anxious. This hypervigilance tends to mean that they use others to regulate their emotions and their mental state, if you haven't caught on to that already, and they're unable to regulate themselves, and then this manifests in codependent tendencies and qualities. So something that I find to be extremely interesting is the fact that people with these insecure attachment styles tend to use these same phrases. So here are some phrases that you will probably either say yourself if you're an anxious attacher or you will hear your anxious attached partner say, do you still love me? Are we okay? Are you going to break up with me? These phrases are all desperate bids for connection. In a secure relationship, of course, everybody needs some kind of validation and affirmations, but that security has to come from within first. Of course, if your partner is never, ever telling you that they love you or validating your emotions, that's a different story. But anxious attachers could be using these phrases on the daily, do you still love me? Are you going to break up with me? Which is not good. You know, you need to have that trust there in your partner that the love exists even if they're not telling you a hundred times a day. So what causes anxious attachment? Since attachment styles are first formed in childhood, like we discussed, it's common to form anxious attachment due to inconsistent parenting. And this can be caregivers being very attentive one day and then the next day either being emotionally or physically unavailable. And when a caregiver is anxious, this can also cause anxious attachment in a child. Or when a caregiver relies on a child to meet their own emotional needs, this can also lead to a child forming a belief system that their loved one's needs are always more important than their own. And so in order to receive that love that they are in need of, um, they need to be the caregivers, regardless of how they themselves are feeling. But as I mentioned, attachment styles can change at any time in your life, so you can also become anxiously attached later on in life as well, maybe due to a parent's divorce or a traumatic event that happens later on in life, or a relationship later on in life can also change your attachment style. So for example, if you grew up secure, but you were in a narcissistic relationship later on in life, you can become anxious in adulthood. There's no surefire answer as to why people have the attachment styles that they do. There's just commonalities in these, in these attachment styles. 
All right, so let's move on to avoidancy. This is a bit more complicated. There are two types of avoidant attachment, dismissive avoidance and fearful avoidance. The two types have much in common, of course, they're both avoidant, but there are differences in their behaviors. So the core wound of an avoidant attacher is deep unworthiness, the fear that they will never be good enough or never be worthy of love. I'm going to start with the traits that both dismissive avoidance or DAs and fearful avoidance or FAs tend to have in common. So both of them value their independence greatly and they need a lot of space. They look down on neediness and dependency. And upon first glance, they seem like they have a very high self-esteem and they're very confident. This is a mask for how they typically feel on the inside. Avoidance tend to really give out mixed signals and hot and cold behavior. Like for example, sometimes they'll call a lot and then other times they won't. They'll drop off the face of the planet, they'll ghost you, but then they'll love bomb you. Or they can say that they're really excited about a future one day and then the next day act like that never happened or express either disgust or disinterest in that at all as if they didn't literally just tell you that. (laughs) A very deeply avoidant person is your stereotypical toxic F-boy or girl um, that you are desperately trying to avoid, let's be honest. (laughs) They devalue you, cheat on you, hyperfixate on your flaws, make mean or derogatory jokes. This, again, is someone who is very deep in their avoidancy and also... (laughs) Like, let's be real, just a shitty person. If you have an avoidant attachment style, it does not mean inherently that you are a shitty person, but typically these people who exhibit shitty behaviors also happen to have an avoidant attachment style. So I want to make that clear. (laughs) I'm not saying fuck all you avoidant attachers. It's, It's not like that. Listen, we all have our flaws. We all have our stuff that we're working through, but... If someone tends to exhibit these qualities, they are also probably avoidant. Avoidance use distancing strategies and they really emphasize boundaries more than any other attachment style. So some sneaky distancing strategies could be they're always on their phone, they hyper fixate on work, they prefer not to sleep in the same bed, or they're very uncomfortable with physical intimacy. They have strict boundaries between their friends and family and your friends and family to maintain that kind of independence. And they have a very unrealistic view on how romantic relationships should be. They idealize the concept of the one or the perfect partner. They tend to idealize their exes And they also tend to be very vague about what went wrong, either what went wrong in the relationship or they tend to blame their ex, you know, the person that's like, my ex is crazy or all my exes are crazy. Red flag, right? But they do this because it's an escape out of their actual reality and it's a way to avoid intimacy with the person that's in front of them. If they fixate on a fantasy of the one or someone with absolutely no flaws that doesn't exist, or they hyperfixate on an ex that they can't have, then they don't have to experience the vulnerability of a real-life relationship that requires work and bravery and vulnerability and intimacy, and also the potential of getting hurt. Avoidance tend to be mistrustful of their partners, much like anxious attachers, and they 
really fear being taken advantage of. They also have uncompromising rules about relationships. So this kind of falls into the category of the whole, the one thing or the perfect partner thing. They have these rigid and certain types Again, because the more unrealistic the standard they have for others, the longer they can make excuses and keep you at arm's length without getting close to you. If they make excuses for why you are not the one, it avoids them confronting the problem that they could have their own fear of commitment. This is a big one. Avoidance need space. They or they always say that they need space whenever conflict arises. They always want to push their partners away in times of conflict because they don't know how to deal with it. They really, really struggle talking about their emotions. And DAs really struggle with just feeling their emotions in general. So they'll do anything to suppress them. Avoidance have difficulty talking about their emotions and expressing what bothers them, which then can lead their partners to feel very uncertain and confused and avoidance feel very overwhelmed with constant bids for connection and they have a tendency to feel suffocated in relationships especially with anxious attachers because they do not want to feel like others rely on them all right so now let's go into the differences between fearful avoidance and dismissive avoidance fearful avoidance have tendencies of both anxious and avoidant attachment so fearful avoidant is actually way more likely to seek out intimacy, but then run away before it gets too serious. Whereas a dismissive avoidant will most likely block out any kind of vulnerability or real intimacy from the get-go. FAs will experience lots of anxiety surrounding intimacy, and DAs will essentially completely shut down and block out all emotions when they get triggered. It's really unlikely for DAs to exhibit any kind of real emotional vulnerability at all, period. They are excellent at suppressing their emotions. FAs want to be vulnerable deep down, but they feel so deeply afraid and distrustful of others. They typically really do desire intimacy, but they're deeply afraid of getting hurt and of feeling unworthy. And DAs have such extreme trouble even accessing their emotions in the first place that they'll typically shut down before anything can even start in the first place. And they typically don't even view intimacy as necessary. DAs usually don't even want that deep emotional connection at all. FAs typically fluctuate between seeking closeness and then pushing others away when they're coping with emotional distress but DAs will remain almost entirely self-reliant at all times. FAs tend to have more people-pleasing tendencies, as this is their anxious side leading, because they care deeply about what others think of them, but DAs tend to have firmer boundaries, and they don't really care about what others think. They only rely on themselves. FAs exhibit extreme hot and cold behavior. I think if you're really looking for the answer between FAs and DAs, it's that FAs are going to be hot and cold with you. And that's because it's not uncommon for them to have codependent behaviors when they where they rely on others and they open up, but then it just hits the point where they get scared, they're getting vulnerable, and then they feel others starting to rely on them. They'll get terrified and they'll pull away and they'll act cold. And this cycle just repeats itself. 
But DAs have extreme trouble accessing their emotions at all, so they tend to consistently be emotionally unavailable, basically at all times. You're not going to get that same hot and cold behavior because they stay stagnant, if that makes sense. FAs are prone to these emotional highs and lows, and they engage in a lot of self-criticism. And they also don't take feedback from others very well. They take it really personally, even when it wasn't intended in a bad way, because they do have that deep fear of unworthiness. But DAs aren't prone to these highs and lows, as they are excellent repressors, and they typically do actually have really high self-esteem. Lastly, a lot of DAs tend to fall into the spectrum of narcissistic personality disorder, again, because they can't feel that emotional vulnerability, uh, which is like the number one thing of NPD is they just don't have empathy for other people. But this is not the case for fearful avoidance. Now, like I spoke earlier about common catchphrases that you might hear with anxious attachers, There are phrases that you'll hear repeated by avoidance, namely fearful avoidance, sorry, but phrases such as, you deserve better than me, I can't give you what you want, or you're just not the one. And then they can never provide further explanation for these phrases. So what causes avoidant attachment? Again, going back to childhood, people who develop avoidant attachment It could be due to caregivers who highly emphasized achievements and they dismissed their emotional needs. And this causes a child to learn that they are only worthy for what they accomplish and it diminishes their need for emotional validation regardless of their circumstances. Additionally, caregivers who always want to fix the problems instead of just validating what their child is feeling leads the child to not trust their own emotional life. If a child learns that they cannot get their emotional needs met by their caregivers, then they learn to either only rely on themselves or to just suppress their emotions altogether. Or a child learns that they are unworthy of love if they can't meet their caregiver's high expectations, i.e. they only get love when they are quote-unquote good. Both of the reasons for avoidant and anxious attached people, it's so deeply sad It's very sad to talk about this, especially knowing that a lot of the reason that people have insecure attachment, it stems from childhood. And also, this is not to just blame our parents, right? People usually are doing the best that they can. A lot of our parents wanted to give us love, but for XYZ reasons, we as children didn't get the validation that we needed. And we develop these coping mechanisms essentially to feel safe because when we're children, when we don't have our needs met, we develop the coping mechanisms in order to feel safe for survival. So, you know, back to the avoidance, when their caregivers aren't giving them the emotional attachment they need or they're hearing, you know, boys don't cry or stop being so sad, suck it up. And there's this disconnect between, well, this is what I'm experiencing, but this is what my caregiver who gives me safety and food and attention who I need to rely on because I'm a kid and I cannot survive on my own. 
I guess I need to be independent in order to literally survive because I need to keep this person in my life. Or if they're not going to give me what I need, then I need to give it to myself in order to survive. So I I hope that provides a little bit of clarity, um, even though it is really sad. And again, this is, it's not a hundred percent necessarily based in childhood, but a lot of the time it is. All right, now let's get into the anxious and avoidant trap. So if you find yourself in these repeated relationship patterns, you might be stuck in what's called the anxious and avoidant trap. These are two people craving connection, two people with deep fears and wounds that complement each other perfectly and horribly. (laughs) The anxious who fears abandonment and the avoidant who fears closeness, opposites attract, and it's an emotional roller coaster, which at times can honestly feel very exciting. But most of the time it's horrifying and exhausting. The anxious attacher wants closeness and with fearful avoidance, they do too. But then when things get too close and their nervous system gets dysregulated, then they push the anxious away. Then the anxious then desperately tries to pull closer because now they're dysregulated and then the avoidant just wants more space. But then the avoidant feels guilty and not good enough for their partner who has these high expectations of them. So then they stop communicating and then the anxious starts acting needier because then they're afraid of being abandoned. But then when the anxious stops their protest behaviors, then the avoidant re-engages because after the space, they've regulated themselves down a bit and the cycle just continues again and again and again. Deep down, Anxious and avoidant attachers both feel scared of intimacy just in different ways. The anxious feels that intimacy is always beyond their grasp and the avoidant fears that intimacy is guaranteed to end in pain. Both of them feel unsafe. Both of them are dysregulated. But as I mentioned, attachment styles can change throughout your life and the good news is that it is possible to become securely attached. So the key to healing your attachment style mainly lies in the ability to first become self-aware and then learn how to self-regulate. It's only when we become self-aware that we can stop blaming our partner for our pain and we need to understand our own triggers so we can work through those and heal those wounds and heal those fears within ourselves. And we can heal through various forms of therapies, somatic work, journaling, and workbooks, and adapting mindfulness habits like meditation and breath work, just to name a few. And additionally, the more that we understand our own patterns and the patterns of others that recur in our lives, the easier we can spot the red flags. If you are an avoidant attacher on your healing journey, recognizing the signs and behaviors of someone heavy in their anxious attachment is crucial re-experiencing a relationship with someone fully unhealed can easily be re-traumatizing and very triggering and could set you right back even if you're doing the work. On your own healing journey, you must not only prioritize yourself but prioritize finding other people who are healing themselves as well or someone who is securely attached. It is possible to heal while being in a relationship, especially if you have an insecure attachment style, but you're with someone who is secure and they have this patience and this empathy and this groundedness that gives you a safe space to heal, 
it's very possible to heal together. I'm going to go into that a little bit more later, but speaking from my own experience, I'll let you in on some other steps that I've taken this past year in my efforts to become more securely attached. And these tips are probably going to be more relevant towards someone struggling with an anxious attachment, but I'm also happy to make a new episode with tips for how an avoidant can heal as well. Anyway, here are some things that I did. I stopped myself from immediately reaching out to a loved one the second that I get triggered or dysregulated. I know that I will have my loved ones to lean on and support me when I truly need it, and I don't want this to be confused with isolating myself, but in order to stop using people as my band-aids, which is absolutely what I was doing, I had to learn how to first calm myself down and regulate myself before immediately jumping to someone else to give me that validation. I held myself, literally, like both arms around myself, I took deep breaths, I journaled, I meditated, I did many EFT tapping sessions, and then once I'm out of that panic and out of that extreme dysregulation, have calmed my nervous system down a little bit, then if I still feel like I needed someone to lean on, I reached out and I got the support that I needed. I also set better boundaries surrounding people that weren't adding to my life, not holding space for people who don't hold space for you huge. In the past, I would hold space for people just because I wanted to be liked and I wanted that approval and I wanted to to feel like that caregiver and that savior. But listen, that's going to drain you. And again, it's a form of self-abandonment. It's letting people walk all over you just to be liked. It's not worth it. I, I'm working on building my own self-esteem and fostering unconditional love and forgiveness for myself, knowing that I will be here for myself at the end of the day and I don't need someone else to complete me. And I have to really prove that to myself, again, by doing all these regulation exercises. It's hard work. And then finally, I am really focusing on myself, my goals, my hobbies, and not allowing myself to get fixated on another person or another singular thing to dictate my worth. While I know that I've come a long way working on myself, I want to openly admit that I'm not going to see truly how far I've come or what I still have yet to heal until I get into another relationship or really start putting myself out there and dating again. There is obviously truth to the statement that you need to love yourself and work on yourself before jumping into a relationship with somebody, especially before you just jump into another relationship to cover up all the feelings that you feel inside. You just want to suppress it down further. You're going to start, you're going to recreate the patterns. It's just a fact. But I also firmly believe that relationships or healthy, nurturing relationships, especially with a securely attached person, are a place to heal as well. At the end of the day, when I'm single, a lot of my attachment wounds aren't being triggered. You know, I know how to regulate myself now, or I'm working on regulating myself, and I don't have a fear of being abandoned because there's no one in my life that I'm scared is going to abandon me. So, I won't really know what work I have yet to do until I'm vulnerable enough with someone again to be triggered by them. So will any of us ever be truly 100% healed? Probably not. 
at least I'm going to choose not to believe that because then I will feed into my perfectionist mindset that I'm also trying to heal. In life, we're going to be triggered. We're going to have fears. But when we work on finding security within ourselves and building relationships with others who want to make us feel secure, that's all we can ask for. No relationship will ever be perfect because humans are not perfect. It's about the give and the take and the willingness to be brave together, to recognize our triggers when they come up and to take accountability for healing them. Even people who have secure attachment styles will have insecurities pop up because that's just life and that's okay. Perfection is not what we're striving for. We are striving to feel safe while also feeling vulnerable. Okay. I hope you learned a few things about yourself in this episode. Maybe your eyes are open to some patterns you tend to exhibit, or you're putting some puzzle pieces together with the people you tend to attract into your sphere. Either way, if you want to dive deeper into attachment theory, let me know. I have some resources in the bio of this episode. And also check me out on YouTube, Everything Works Out For Us podcast. Or if you're watching on YouTube, hey. (laughs) And I'd love to see you on my TikTok, Everything Works Out Pod. That's works without the O. Couldn't fit that extra letter, but I'm posting daily video content on there. And I would love to see your comments and suggestions for future episodes or questions that you would like me to dive deeper into for future episodes. I have mentioned before, I have a lot of really exciting guest stars coming up within the next few weeks and months, and I can't wait to share them all with you. So until then, I hope you stay warm and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your week. Sending love and healing vibes. See you next week.